Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, Murder at the Warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building, and how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. There are some criminals who deserve a chance at redemption and freedom. There are others who are far too dangerous to ever leave the confines of a prison cell. On November 14, 1994, a man was finally arrested who had, time and time again, been released from prison despite the dangers he posed to the citizens of Wisconsin. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. David Frank Spanbauer was born into a blue-collar German Catholic family in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 1941 as the oldest of what would later become three children. The family's only boy, Frank Spanbauer, was tougher on his son than his daughters, which resulted in a strained relationship between the pair. After his father passed away when he was just 14 years old, David spent the rest of his teens in and out of trouble with the law, dropping out of high school just after turning 17, joining the army, and almost immediately being court-martialed three times for being absent without leave, spent seven months in the brig, and was dishonorably discharged in November of 1959. Before leaving the Navy, his mother received a letter from the doctors stating their belief that her son needed psychiatric care. She did nothing about the letter. With the Navy a part of the past, David went back to Oshkosh High School to try and pick up where he left off, and before long, got himself into his first major adult legal activity. On January 3rd, 1960, David broke into a home in Appleton and left with two diamond rings, a hunting knife, 
some alcohol, cash, and a 22 caliber handgun. A gun he used the very next night to rob a home in Nina, and a week later, masked and ready to go, David broke into another home where, after flashing his pistol, he snatched a 13-year-old girl and threatened to rape her. When she asked what that meant, he slapped her twice. Her screams attracted the attention of a person walking by, and 19-year-old David ran off before anyone could capture him. On January 12th, after watching her through a window as she babysat her cousins, David entered a home and dragged 16-year-old Carol Grady into the bedroom where he brutally raped her. Her uncle just happened to come home right in the middle of his attack, and David shot the man in the face before escaping into the night. The man was somehow able to survive his injuries, and David was arrested in Sheboygan County on February 16th for carrying a concealed firearm. While in police custody, he broke down and confessed to his past crimes. Labeled as a sexual deviant, David Spambauer was sentenced to 70 years in prison. While behind bars, David's mother, Evelyn, wrote letters to the authorities encouraging David's release. Even speaking to the governor and claiming that her son was not a pervert, was convicted on the word of a, quote, licentious woman, and was found guilty because he was far too poor to fight for his innocence. While she continued her one-woman crusade to release her son, David was suspected of carrying out sexual relationships with some of his younger prisoners, was known for his vicious temper, claimed he could not control his actions, and got a devil prison tattoo on his forearm. This would be important later. He was then released after just 12 years of his 70-year sentence. Now older and hopefully a little bit wiser, David tried to make good with his newfound freedom. Enrolling in a local technical college and maintaining good grades, David was living at the YMCA at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and trying to stay on the straight and narrow. However, the allure of crime soon called to him yet again, and before long, the good path deviated and David became involved in the local crime scene and let an escaped prisoner borrow his car so they could make a run for it. The fugitive was soon arrested after a robbery in Middleton. Back behind bars for his involvement in the robbery, David was able to participate in a prison work release program that allowed inmates to work outside the prison walls during the morning and return to stay overnight. So he started working at the local parks and beaches during the summer of 1972. Beaches that were known for their bikini-clad co-eds who came for a relaxing dip at the city's lake. Kind of the perfect spot for a man convicted of rape who had just spent 12 years behind bars. Through his program, David became familiar with Token Creek Park, which is where he drove a 17-year-old hitchhiker on August 11, 1972, pulled out a knife, and explained that, once he was done raping her, he was going to run her over with his car and toss her body into the ditch. She burst into tears, and to her surprise, so did David. Through his tears, he tied her up and raped her, never making good on his promise to run her over. The young girl went to the police and told them that a man with a devil tattoo on his forearm had raped her, and David was quickly rounded up as a suspect. She identified him and he insisted their encounter was consensual. He was found guilty of abduction and rape and the prosecution begged for the maximum sentence. Instead, the judge reasoned that the rape was much more, quote, mild than his previous attacks 
and therefore proved he had improved from, quote, very dangerous sex offender to just dangerous. He was given 12 more years in prison to run concurrently with his revoked parole. The judge would later claim the girl was, quote, asking for it and tempting fate by hitchhiking. The lawyers were furious, but in the end, there was very little that they could do. Assistant District Attorney Burr would later say that David Spanbauer was, quote, in the top 10 of the most vicious and violent people I've ever had the displeasure of coming in contact with. A man who was released from prison yet again in 1991. With $8,000 in his savings from his work at prison, David moved in with his sister and her husband, who just so happened to be an Oshkosh police officer and got a job at a bottling plant until he could save up to get an apartment on the west side of Oshkosh. Once again, things seemed to be going well for David. He worked during the day, spent the evening minding his own business at a local tavern nursing his alcohol, was considered a nice guy, and filed his reports with his parole officer. On Christmas Eve in 1991, David had a heart attack that, for a moment, left him without a heartbeat. Doctors revived him, but the condition of his heart left lasting effects on the parolee. While David seemed to once again be on the straight and narrow, keeping to himself and trying to tend to his health, women in and around the area of Winnicani started disappearing at an alarming rate. First was 20-year-old Lauren DePice, who worked at the Fox River Mall and finished her shift on August 19, 1992, with plans to visit some friends in Manisha. She never showed up, and with the exception of her locked car found parked in her apartment parking lot, no trace of Laura has ever been found. Police, much later, would find out that Laura went missing the day David Spambauer started his summer vacation. Three days later, 10-year-old Ronelle Eichstedt went missing only to have her body turn up six weeks later, 100 miles away, in a cornfield ditch near the Wisconsin River. She'd been riding her bike at the time of her abduction and had, at some point, been raped prior to her murder. David Spambauer transported her small body that 100 miles in a 1988 Eagle premiere that he would later sell in exchange for a 1991 Pontiac Bonneville. On July 3rd, 1994, two years after the initial attacks, a 24-year-old Illinois woman named Miriam Sturihot was terrorized by an attempted abduction near Hartman Creek State Park in Wapaka County. She'd been riding her bike on the country road when a maroon Pontiac slammed into her and caused her to crash to the ground. When she looked up, a man holding a pistol was approaching her. But when a passerby slowed down to see what was happening, the man got back into his car and sped off. She called the police and the FBI hired an artist from California to try and help create a sketch of Miriam's attacker. Unsure if the sketch was accurate and already inundated with tips about the increasing attacks, they only released the sketch to investigators involved in the crime. On that same day, Miriam's attacker, undeterred by the near miss, robbed an Appleton residence. For the first time since he was 19 years old, David was spending more time out of jail than inside, and making the most of it, his crime started to escalate and increase. He burglarized homes left and right in the Fox Valley region, most of the time getting in and out without an incident, and on the off chance that a resident was home, he simply grabbed his gun and threatened his way out. But on some occasions... 
a threat didn't seem to be enough. On July 9th, 1994, 21-year-old Trudy Jeschke was shot to death after interrupting a man robbing her Appleton home armed with a handgun. The robber had apparently thought no one was home, and when he happened upon Trudy in the bedroom of the house, he fired one shot into her chest. She died before she was able to give any description of her attacker. A description of David Spanbauer, who ditched his gun just after her murder. On September 5th, 1994, 12-year-old Cora Jones was driving her bike near her grandma's house when a man got out of his car, grabbed her, and dragged her inside. After molesting the young girl, David drove 75 miles north and, after five or six hours with her in captivity, he strangled and stabbed the girl to death and threw her body into a steep ditch. After police and hundreds of volunteers searched for Cora Jones, the FBI joining at one point, her body was found five days later by some local hunters. Her clothes were gone, her hands bound behind her back with ripped shreds of a pink t-shirt, body beaten, raped, strangled, and stabbed. And in his wake, the killer left behind a small speck of carpet fiber. The abduction and murder of Ronell Eichstedt and Cora Jones sent the community into complete shock. And as a result, one of the area's most intensive police investigations began. And as it progressed, all of these seemingly unconnected crimes taking place in the Appleton area were looked into with a renewed sense of concern. A task force was assembled, a reward was offered, and the investigation into the crimes began to intensify. Yet, that didn't seem to stop David Spambauer. On October 13, 1994, he broke into yet another Appleton home, broke into a different residence and sexually assaulted a 15-year-old girl seven days later, and sexually assaulted a 31-year-old woman on November 5th. Then, on November 14, 1994, he met his match when a man in combined locks tackled David as he tried to flee from yet another break-in. The homeowner, Gerald Argall, held the burglar down on the ground, having no clue that he was restraining a dangerous serial killer. Police took him into custody that same night, and after a quick search of his car, had the feeling this wasn't David's first burglary attempt. Four days later, David Spambauer admitted to not only the burglaries and attempted abduction near Hartman Creek, but the murder of Ronell Eichstadt, Trudy Jeske, and Cora Jones. A match to the sketch created by his near miss and a look at the carpet fibers found on Cora's body confirmed everything, though he was officially cleared of the 1992 murder of Laura DePice. On December 8, 1994, David Spambauer pleaded no contest to two charges and guilty to the remaining 16 against him. He was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide in Cora and Ronell's murder and, on the 20th, sentenced to three consecutive life terms plus 403 years. He has no chance for parole or early release this time. He has never expressed any remorse for his crimes. On July 29, 2002, at 61 years old, David died of liver and heart disease in an infirmary cell. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on November 15th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.